It's time to be mindful and take a more bee-centric look inside our hives. Welcome to the Natural Beekeeping Corner with our host, Natalie B. Hi, Les. Thank you for... Thank you for joining me today for the Natural Beekeeping Corner and um, chatting about bees. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Great. So today we're going to talk about several things. I think you wanted to talk about um, carrying capacity for local areas when, for beekeepers. Um, and that also uh, includes discussions about supplemental feeding, um, good bees versus, you know, bees that need help for surviving. What are your thoughts? Let's get started a little bit on what the background story is about that carrying capacity. What does it mean? And how, why is it important to natural beekeeping, but also all beekeeping in general? Well, carrying capacity is how many cows can I have in this field or how many foxes can live in this valley before they run out of food. And carrying capacity affects all plants and animals that we know of on planet Earth. And generally, most animals and plants rise to their carrying capacity and then stay roughly at the carrying capacity. It changes a little bit from year to year. Some years are good years, and there's more grass for the cows to eat or flowers for the bees to make honey from. And other years are bad years. And so it moves up and down a bit. What brought me to the my mind to the attention of this for bees, years ago, I, I lived in New Mexico and the city of Santa Fe had quite a few feral uh, hives. So, and some of them were in nuisance areas like near schools or something. So there was an opportunity to be removals. And then I began teaching classes there. And I spent quite a few years teaching classes Quite a few people took the class and started keeping bees. And what I noticed was that as more and more people had from two to 10 hives in their backyards, the feral bee calls diminished. And some years there was none. We couldn't find any feral bees. And it occurred to me that, is it possible that the kept bees are now meeting or exceeding the carrying capacity of the area to support honeybees and that we are trying to keep more bees in the area than can be. The, the problem with that is that when we take bees and put them in a beehive, are we taking a feral colony out of existence? Are we competing with the feral bees? And by nature of our help, we're making it harder for the feral bees. So we're just keeping, there's still the carrying capacity, but the majority of the bees are being kept. Now that's still okay if we keep the long-term biological needs of the bees in our minds as we're breeding bees, because by keeping all the bees ourselves, we run the risk of um, putting their ability to adapt in our hands and that means that we can override their natural um, biological needs. Or subvert uh, them to our goals. Right, because we want honey and we can kill mites. We can give them high fructose corn syrup 
and pollen substitute, we can put them on a completely artificial path that doesn't have anything to do with nature and in the long run do them a disservice. We can't even take care of our own biological needs all that well. We have drug addiction, we have poor food choices. We have relatively little education and research into the study of nature, of biology. I believe that we're going to go into the age of biology, that we've been through the industrial age, the well, the Iron Age, the you know, all the different ages. And we went through the industrial age and now the information age. And that's enabled us to do the research that's going to help us delve more deeply into the age of biology. We need to do it quickly before, while there still is plenty of biology to study. We have a propensity to separate ourselves from nature, to sort of dominate and control nature with machines and toxic chemistry. Yeah. So, so for those of you who don't know Les, Les Crowder um, actually, I, I believe almost doesn't need any more introductions, but for those of you who don't know Les, Les is actually a trained biologist. He's also an uh, expert beekeeper. He's been keeping bees for over 55 years and over 30, 35 years of those have been in natural and or uh, tabar hive um, uh, contexts. So he's an expert at uh, trusting the bees and leveraging their natural instincts, understanding them, understanding the animal to be able to work with them rather than imposing um, our human goals on them. So that may, makes for much more fructful um, outcomes with the bees. And, and as a general rule, they thrive naturally. And, and Les is really good at, you know, being mindful of their well-being and also how that can be put in the context of what we're trying to do with them for our own uh, goals, but without exploiting them. Uh, one of the things that we always talk about is working with the bees rather than imposing our will on them. So um, the I love that the you were talking about carrying capacity because, you know, be mindful. It's you and I. We work together. Uh, that's the other thing that you guys need to know is Les Crowder and I are uh, be mindful. And um, we we try to really uh, fit that name and live up to that name because we realize that we are all all interconnected and the bees are kind of a canary coal mine and a representation of that interconnectedness they're really where um we touch to that nature natural and almost wild uh, nature of the bees and still are able to work with them but that caring capacity is really um critical because it it's expands not just to the bees but like you mentioned all livestock all animal all life including human life and how um, you know, the numbers that we have right now are not necessarily sustainable for the care. We're kind of uh, getting past the carrying capacity of the planet with human beings as well. And the way we're exploiting it and, and mm -hmm. extracting the resources for our own benefit. So it, it's just kind of that, that gets into the philosophical aspect of things. I believe um, that is a representation of how mindful we should be if we want to make our interconnectedness 
sustainable uh, with our planet, but with our animals and our crops and our vegetables and and all that. That that pervade, pervades everything, including those big monocultures, the, the way we do industrial agriculture, pesticides, fungicides, toxins that we put in our environment and how it impacts also our uh, bees for sure. So let's circle back to the bees again um, because this is the natural beekeeping corner. Um, but just keeping that in mind and keep that in the back of your mind that um, the goal here is to be mindful and to kind of take a step back and not take those bees for granted and push onto them our goals and um, <clears throat> processes and kind of start trusting them a little bit more. Uh, what we want really to be sustainable is naturally thriving bees instead of weak bees that need um, treatments and constant help to be able to just survive and potentially uh, produce, but in an artificial way because they've been pushed by being fed um, pollen supplements, pollen um, uh, patties or soft sugar blocks or a ton of sugar syrup that might mess uh, with their gut microbiome. So there's a lot of unintended consequences when we don't trust the bees to follow their natural um, th um, uh, instincts and strategies. So I love the point mm -hmm. that you're making about the feral bees um, input can you expand on that a little bit more or less? The fact right. that um, we're right now, we're kind of like focusing on the bees that are kept and, and trying to breed for specific traits and for specific things. And we are kind of completely discarding the inputs that the feral bees could be putting into that equation and which you and I both believe are critical if we want to keep that diversity and, and potentially <clears throat> some of that ingenuity in finding solutions to the problems yeah. that the bees encounter. Right, well, and you make a good point. You know, a lot of people got into beekeeping recently because they're saying, um, oh, we're worried about if they're not gonna be bees, they're not gonna survive. We, we need the bees for pollinating our food. Mm -hmm. So we need to save the bees. Well, we don't save the bees when we buy a beehive and fill it with artificial food and poison to kill the mites. If anything, we're actually doing the bees a disservice because we're making them less fit to the natural environment by, by breeding bees that are miticide dependent and feed dependent. We can give them artificial, you know, high fructose corn syrup up to the wazoo and then wonder why they don't thrive when there's no high artificial feed. So we have to try to help the bees be adapted to the natural environment and, and then dance with the flowers and the bees in our territory. And we have to listen to the bees. And I think that it's important to have feral bees because in a sense, our kept bees get drug into our economics and our beliefs. So if we believe that they can't survive without miticides, we make sure they can because we give them miticides and they become dependent on the miticides We've sort of made our, our prognosis true mm -hmm. instead of letting bees rise to naturally resist the mite and stay strong, we've weakened them. So even people like uh, uh, the scientific beekeeping uh, guy, Randy Oliver, back in 2016, he was <clears throat> basically saying the same thing. 
that we need to let our bees find ways to, to thrive naturally. And he also had that same warning that we keep repeating to everybody, if you're gonna go with commercial bees, bees that are treated that need those treatments to stay alive, you're doing everybody a disservice um, because you're not letting the bee, you're not picking from the strongest bee, the, the bees, the locally naturally, the local naturally thriving bees. And, and then you don't, you, if you decide to go treatment free and you get those commercial bees and you don't treat them, they're going to die and they're going to be the ones that are going to be potentially creating more problems with their load, their overload of mite uh, populations. So my big question usually, and, and that's something that I'm starting to kind of um, ask around, every time somebody's got issues with colonies crashing, you see people that are asking, what was your mite count? When did you last treat? And I think that it would behoove us to really ask a different question, which should be, what kind of bees were you keeping? Right. Where, did you Where get are you keeping bees? commercial bees? Where are you keeping treated bees? Because that's really the underlying right. problem. Right, and we're putting bees on a two-track system. Mm -hmm. One where they're keeping themselves out in the trees, and one where, where it's like what we did to cows. There's no longer any um, ancient predecessor of the cow. The cow is completely a domesticated beast in our hands, and we have cows that can barely walk. They can give 15 gallons of milk, but they can't hardly walk because their udders are so large, they don't clear the ground when they stand up. So is that what we want to do with our bees, breed these bees that are, you know, sit in the hive and just suck on syrup all day? And that's, that sounds extreme, but it, we've, we've done that with other animals already. So we can do that with bees if we choose to, but I definitely choose not to, and I don't think there's a longevity in that system. That our carrying capacity is going to be drag us away from that, either wisely when we begin changing how we do things to adapt and farm and keep bees more in a natural, a naturally sustainable way, or we have a catastrophe that forces us to do that. We we can't get away from nature. We and I don't want to get away from nature. Nature is beautiful, it's wonderful. It's full of flowers and abundance when you live rightly. Oh, you got help. I always have help. And she's explaining something that I'm not sure is quite English. <laughs> she doesn't speak. I don't always understand her, no. <laughs> that was very, very uh, fluent in a different language. <laughs> yeah. Maybe she's speaking in tongues, I don't know. I don't know, but she was speaking very fast. Um, yeah, I, I was going to say less, that, that caring capacity is kind of an interesting, I, I keep going back to that because it's important for our, all backyard beekeepers especially, but also for commercial beekeepers. What happens is that you have yeah. areas of good forage and you see a whole lot of removals happening and you see a whole lot of calls for swarms. You see your bees are thriving and then all of a sudden you got a lot of um, the sprawl, the urbanization catches up and you start seeing fewer calls for swarms and cutouts and removals. And you start seeing that your bees are not bringing as much in. And all of a sudden you've got, for example, a, a commercial beekeeper that brings in 
several hundreds of hives in the area and, and you see the saturation is starting to change the amount of resources that are coming in into your colonies. And uh, we had at the Hayes County Beekeepers Association um, meeting last month, a lady by the name of Christine Kurtz. Um, and she mentioned she basically used to keep about 20 colonies, no problems. She never fed, never even gave them any sugar syrup. And that was fine until the commercial beekeepers came and brought over their hundreds of colonies in that area to overwinter. And at that point, um, she saw, uh, uh, you know, colonies were dying because they didn't find any food. So she decided to bring down the number of colonies that she had down from 20 to two. And those two are actually faring okay. So there's something to keep in mind. We're, we don't keep our bees in a vacuum. And I'm not saying that what the commercial beekeepers are doing is wrong. I'm saying they've got their own goals. Uh, however, it's important to realize that our colonies are not the only ones in the area. There are other colonies and with the popularity of beekeeping increasing, um, you're getting a lot more pressure on the food sources and a lot more competition for the food sources, not just only on our bees, our honeybees, our kept bees, but on the feral populations um, that kind of links to those decreases in swarm calls and removals and cutouts, um, but also on the native bees. And if we want to be mindful, we have to keep that in mind because the native pollinators are definitely competing with our honeybees and our honeybees are basically generalists and they will forage very efficiently, I might add, onto all kinds of flowers. And when some native bees are only foraging and some butterflies and other pollinators are only using specific flowers um, and then they, they have to compete with that pressure. So that really is a double whammy on the ecosystem and we wanna keep that in mind. But Les, how do you, Go by. Um, so we, we're trying to be practical here. What should we tell beekeepers and especially backyard beekeepers that are the vast majority of beekeepers in the United States, really, um, on how they can mitigate those issues and what they should look for and how they can improve their, their stock uh, by potentially breeding away with the, the bees that are weak and just kind of keeping the survivor bees. What's your thoughts on that? Right, well, first of all, um, uh, Michael Bush and I, years ago, were at a meeting somewhere and we, were, we got to talking and he made a point I really like. I read if, that in your post, it's a really good point. If, if you have a situation where your bees are gonna die because they're starving, that's an emergency and you should feed your bees. But if you have that emergency in most of your beehives, most every year, it's no longer an emergency, it's mismanagement. Or it's chronic problems with your bees. Yeah, well, yeah. And it means it's very possible that that's where you've exceeded carrying capacity. Now, if you have a couple of hives in your backyard, that's probably fine. That's not all that much to add to the, the bees in the neighborhood, but which kind of bees do you have? And what can you do if you have, if you've had to get commercial bees that you know are might susceptible? Well, you know, I mean, you can try, first of all, to find bees that aren't before you even get started. 
And that can be a little bit hard, but it's worth the effort because there are people that are breeding bees or there are ways to get bees by putting your name on swarm lists that have a better chance at surviving mm-hmm. than, than just buying commercial and treated bees. By the way, if I may, uh, b-mindful.com slash resources. Um, we have a list, a map of uh, untreated stock providers or educators. Um, and you can kind of see if there's anybody in your area that's selling bees that are locally adapted, because that's important as well. They will do better than bees that have been imported from other states. Um, and that are treatment-free, that are not treated, that are naturally thriving. And, and so if you go there on that map and you kind of look around and you might be able to find somebody that, that provides those bees and that sells those bees that are adapted to your area. But if you don't, what do you do less? Well, one thing I like to tell people to do is to go for the, what I call the F1. So you've got some bees, if they can build up when the times are good, Keep them in a small box so they fill up fairly quickly. You know, the small hive initiative that Tom Seeley, you can Google him anytime, S-E-E-L-E-Y. And he says, shows that bees prefer to be in a smaller box than we tend to give them. So in our case, we use the half hive, half of a top bar hive. Mm-hmm. That's, That's about 15 bars, right. 15 combs. And that's plenty of it for them to get through the winter, but it isn't enough for them to make all the bees and honey they might make if they could really go. Well, wait, 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 they, Les, they, they might, but we have to manage them differently. They can make all that honey still, right? Yeah, they still make honey, but, but it often encourages them to get swarmy. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing because then when we see queen cells, we can make a divide and now that daughter queen is going to hatch or emerge and she's going to go out and mate with the local, local drones. feral drones. And Tom Silly also pointed out that when you look at the drone congregation areas, turns out the feral drones have a higher um, saturation of the drone congregation areas because they're stronger. That's right. They're better fed. With, they're better fed. They're not treated with Mycides that turn out to be bad for the drone or bad for bees also. So that means your bee daughter, the, the, the daughter of your queen is gonna mate with feral bees and that's gonna bring her back to the locally adapted, mite resistant bees that are in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. We have great bees in this neighborhood for that. Mm-hmm. We have bees that really know how to get through the Austin San Antonio climate, and they're tough on the mites. They're mite resistant. We have bees that, like you've got your worry hive that you haven't touched for years. I just checked on it. It's doing fine. Yeah, and they, they you know, we've been told, oh, they're going to die within three years. Well, they, they definitely are not. They're Seven, eight bad. years, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we, and lots of people know that we, they can get their bees to live year after year mm-hmm. by keeping the right kind of bee. And then you're saving the bee. Mm-hmm. You're, you're helping save the bee because you're working with the bee instead of mm-hmm. trying to give them poison that's supposed to help them. 
those local mutts is what you want when you want yeah. strong bees naturally thriving bees is local mutts and um i got into an argument not that long ago about uh we used to call those uh survivor stock local survivor stock and somebody said well i don't just want my bees to survive i want them to thrive and to their point i think that we should say what we what we see is those local mutts are naturally thriving and they're not needing any help to do so so i don't think that we should use that term survivor they are more than survivor they're naturally thriving and, mm -hmm. and um, what that implies also is that they don't need all those pollen supplements, uh, soft sugar bricks, uh, syrup. I even saw somebody posted about a commercial beekeeper was advising, was mentioning that if you keep feeding your bees pollen into the fall, for, for, you can prolong the presence of your drones into your colonies. But what you're doing also when you're doing that, and it's for the simple sake of the commercial beekeepers looking for um, uh, new queens so that they can satisfy those issues with the, the colonies that are in need, um, rather than eliminating them from the gene pool because they're weaker. Um, or, and I'm saying commercial beekeepers, that could be anybody that's doing that. Um, but the point is that you end up with, uh, pushing pollen into a season that's not adapted and what the bees do in the fall when the winter dearth is approach approaching they start rearing the winter bees and those are called actually duteinous bees long-lived bees and we kind of call them winter bees because they're the ones that will get carry the colony throughout the winter and over the other side to the spring only to die and not do much and rearing the first of the foragers mm. to get the colonies back on track with that. And what happens is that the, the, the rearing of the winter bees is triggered by a shortage of pollen. So when we do force feed pollen, uh, especially when it's mixed with sugar syrup, which the bees are looking for and they will absorb readily if there's a dearth, um, then you're force feeding that uh, a little bit akin to what uh, the French are doing with the, um, the, the foie gras and the geese that they're fattening up, like force feeding. Um, the, uh, the, the consequence of that is that you might end up with bees that are still summer bees being reared and the winter coming in and setting in without them having had the opportunity to rear those winter bees. But those summer bees are not gonna, their mm. body doesn't contain all the vitilogenin. All the fat bodies are, are, are not there for, for the summer bees. So they cannot get through the winter and, and they will get a little bit of an extension of life because they're not gonna be foraging when it's cold, but they're not gonna get through the entire winter. They don't have the reserve, the body reserves that they need. So it's a mistake and it's a, it's a it's a it's a it's a mistake if you don't understand that cycle and if you don't take into account those unintended consequences you have to really every time you get into a colony you have to realize this is a super complicated uh, super organism that has a lot of interact interacting uh, systems and back feedback um, uh, feedback loops that if we start messing with them we really mm. throw off and we end up with potentially issues. I was reading another post last, somebody was like, well, this beekeeper, um, all their colonies left just after they were done treating. I'm like, 
And people were like, well, what was their mite counts? Well, I'm like, do you realize that the treatments actually are taking a toll? They all have negative consequences. They all have issues, whether it be, you know, um, uh, queen events, adult kills, absconsion, which is what happened, uh, brood kill potentially, um, just kind of not all of them are um, easy to apply yeah. because they fall within specific parameters of temperature and, and, and weather. And so there's something to keep in mind. Uh, I think that we're better off those bees that cannot naturally thrive on their own. Uh, we're better off letting them go and keep the ones that are doing that because those are going to be invariably the stronger bees. And those are the ones that we want to rear bees or, or bees from for the future. I think that there's something also to be said about designer queens, you know, the artificially inseminated queens or the Carniolans, Russians, Caucasians, whatever, kind of like everybody's kind of going for the golden, the silver bullet, the golden queen and i think that that's it's you know it's the bees are going to eventually cross over and swarm and you're going to be left with a queen that's that's not really the the genetics that you had initially um so you might as well kind of get with the the ferals um in the local muts and the natural naturally thriving you're going to be better off than getting designer genetics anyway and and the other as aspect of that you touched upon this less is that even if you have let's say poor genetics with treated commercial stock that's uh, you're trying to to work with and it's not looking like it's doing so well the first thing you can try is by letting them rear a new queen from even the the stock the eggs that they have pinch the queen if they have eggs let them rear a new queen that's going to go mate with your local drones and get some of those genetics in and introduce some of that re re resiliency already in your stock. And that's very, very important to know, especially if you don't have access to those treatment-free bees that we were talking about, if you've got nobody near you. Right, Les? And that's how you start breeding your own bees in your own neighborhood. And, you know, it's, it's a slow start, but it'll get you going. And it may, in a very short amount of time, turn your bees around. Because mm -hmm. that queen will, if she, if it all goes well, then she'll start laying and she'll have mite resistance in her and they'll clean up the hive and the hive will begin to thrive. And so that's, that really, the feral bees are our hope. And what we want is, you know, like if I have a bee yard, and I do have some bee yards that due to um, regulations, you might say, we have to keep more bees in that area then we really probably should you know so th then they need to be fed if 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 i had my druthers i'd say you know what there's too many bees in this bee yard i'm going to go find another bee yard for some of these bees exactly i'm going to spread them out a little bit cut this down to five or six and see how it does and the, hopefully that's reaching more of the carrying capacity so that's listening to your bees that's not saying I need 20 beehives here mm -hmm. for this or that reason. It's just saying, how many beehives should I have here? And let nature tell you. And, you know, farmers are pretty famous at, oh, next year's going to be better. And then mm -hmm. try to not be too Hopefully. overly optimistic. Yeah. Try to be realistic. Okay, I have too many bees here. Mm -hmm. And it just isn't working for them or me. 
So I'm going to move some bees out and I'm going to go find a better place and keep some bees somewhere else. Right, move them to better forage. So that's the other thing. If you're even if you're looking for production of honey, which uh, to be honest, and for full for the sake of full disclosure, Les and I, you and I, we don't we are not really looking for that. We're growing bees rather than we are producing honey. Um, but if you are interested in honey production, which a lot of people start beekeeping for that reason. Keep in mind that uh, if you put too much pressure on your environment and you have too many colonies, their production is going to decrease anyway. And to mm -hmm. maintain it, you're going to end up having to feed them, which is expensive. It's time consuming. It's, it's, a, it's not good for the bees. And I think that in the end, it's a lost cause. Whereas if you keep fewer in one yard and you're getting almost as much honey without having to feed them anything, right then at that point what's the trade-off keep that in mind don't yeah. keep pushing your animals um to produce for you if the carrying capacity is reached it, you know just kind of take it back a notch and just kind of um, let them thrive and produce for you how much honey um is a backyard beekeeper consuming in all reality right um if with a couple of hives that's that, that are thriving that's much more than enough for a family, family right. if yeah. you're trying to sell um, honey and produce a whole lot more, then just stay below the carrying capacity for your yard and then find other yards. There's plenty of people that would love to have bees on their land, even for free, especially for free, but even they may be willing to pay you for your hives um, that have better forage, yeah. right? Right, and that then behooves, if you're gonna go into that, you should learn about your area. Mm -hmm. There are areas that do, like even right here in Texas, we know of areas where they don't do very well and where they tend to do much better. So look for those really good areas where the bees do better to set up another bee yard somewhere where they can produce more honey. Mm -hmm. And then it brings me to a whole different subject, but resist the temptation once you've oversold your honey Mm -hmm. to buy honey and package it as if it were your own and resell it because that's just uh, i hate to bring that up but that happens so often well uh, in the vast honey. majority of cases for the honey that you that is for sale yes yeah it's, it's it, you know it's so easy to sell the honey and then you, start, you realize i sold it all and i want to keep making money but i know where i can buy a barrel of honey pretty cheap and i'll just rebottle it but then you really don't know what you're getting. And, you know, just I strongly advise people to resist that. And I got to where I'd go to the markets and I'd say, okay, I'm sold out. And I don't go back to the market until I'm ready. Or I had a friend who had bees in Mexico and he made some delicious specialty honey. And I went and imported barrels from him in my pickup, got across customs and USDA and all that, it was a pain in the rear. And I said, this is honey from Mexico from my friend Isidro. And I was honest about it at least. Right? Exactly, no, you have a, what, for those of you who don't know, the honey industry <clears throat> is full of shenanigans and a big scheme is, especially when what you see in the grocery store is mostly part of that scheme, but that happens also in local larger boutique uh, beekeepers that are selling their honey and very often are mixing it with imports and things like that. So you get a lot of um, um, packer, produ producer packers, or I forget what the names are, but basically they buy bulk 
from sources from all over the world and they import it and and a lot of people buy wholesale from those and will either mix it with their own honey or just simply rebottle it and put their name on it it's not a very ethical practice but just about every beekeeper that i know that sell with a volume does that and if you don't disclose where that honey is coming from i don't think that's ethical uh consumers don't realize that when they buy honey very often especially in the grocery store it is not necessarily honey right and i knew people in new mexico who are no longer there but they were bottling high fructose corn syrup with a little honey and molasses give it a test and so you know they they just get so tempting Mm -hmm. but it's it's you sleep so much better if you just produce your honey sell it say okay now i'm out and it makes your honey more valuable Mm -hmm. because then people know that they trust you and they come back whenever you have more honey they're quick to buy it and they appreciate and respect you for your honesty Mm -hmm. so it's just better all the way around for everybody yes so go go for the for the quality and uh higher prices rather than the volume is what i would say you're not going to compete with the walmart of honey uh beekeepers and 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 things like that so it's it's a lost battle you're better off going higher and and just kind of promoting it right in small smaller batches than you are going in volume there's not that much money to be made in volumes in honey period um so that brings me to another thing you know it's so much easier. So, so it's a it's a trade off, but it's it's so much easier to let the bees do the work than to do the work ourselves, right? So if we keep on fe- feeding them and over managing them so that they can be pushed to the maximum honey production, um, it doesn't always, you know, it, we're still expending all that effort and time. How much are we really paying ourselves uh, anyway, financially speaking? Right. Whereas if you put the bees in the right kind of forage areas and you let them do their thing, maybe do a little bit of space management so that they can expand really big or you harvest as you go so they have the space to do that. You return you know, some of those frames. You can do all kinds of things to help them along without having to feed them, without having to treat them, without having to do anything. Because when it comes down to it, when you have bees in good local forage, most of those issues with the pests are disappearing because in the, like you say all the time, less good forage will make good beekeepers out of all of us. That stressor from the lack of food is disappearing, which means the problems with the pests and the pathogens, including the mites and the uh, small high beetles and all that stuff, which to me are a, a symptom of an underlying bigger problem, um, which is usually poor genetics or poor nutrition, they disappear. That's not no longer an issue. And and so there's something to keep in mind. There's no, there's no secret here. Rather than not seeing the forest behind the tree, let's just kind of keep in mind that if you have good queens, naturally local, local naturally thriving queens, uh, and you have good nutrition, the bees are they're going to take care of themselves. We let our bees take care of themselves a lot because we know they're they're in good condition. Right, and that's that's respecting the bees and letting them be bees. Even like not putting them in foundation. 
lets them be free to build whatever cell size they want. That's just out of respect that they know how to run their lives and that they should run their lives according to their plan. And I, I want to learn about their plan as much as I can through observation, but I don't want to interfere with them as little as possible. I want so you, to help them thrive and thrive with them. You make an excellent point. Basically, when you intervene so much and you're overriding their processes constantly through feeding, through treating, through um, manipulating boxes um, all the time, you it becomes a lot harder to really understand the bees. It's right. no longer so, an organism that you uh, have seen evolve naturally and therefore there's no way to understand it properly and at a deeper level that's going to make a better beekeeper out of you you're all of a sudden you're on a uh, on a plan to do things your way and and just some of the bees will make it through and some of them will not whereas if you leveraging and understanding the superorganism really deeply uh, there's higher chances that you're going to help them along the way and they'll do the work they'll be thriving on their own right and same with the mites, you know, if we help them with the mites, we, we, they don't learn to thrive on their own. And we can help the mites and the bees. We're in a dance with mites and bees. We can't get the mite out of the yeah. dance. So we have to accept her as a partner in our dance. Mm -hmm. And how do we live and thrive? And I think it's, we know it's very possible for us all to thrive even with the mites, the mites are not my enemy anymore. Hive beetle, I no longer run around, oh, squish, squish, I got to kill all these hive beetles. I feel like hive beetles have a place. Right. And I, we have to accept them. So that's the, that's the essence of biology and, and uh, understanding those principles. The way that Kirk Webster is also described before, you can leverage those pests and predators and, and pathogens um, to your advantage, to the bees' advantage, by uh, putting that pressure um, in a way that's balanced enough. You, you, your bees will develop strategies. They will be stronger for it. That pests will uh, lose some of that virulence and things will come into balance. And there's plenty of colonies that we have that have high mite counts because we started counting mites and they still overwinter, they still thrive, they still do their thing. It is not necessarily the end of the world. You have bigger issues to contend with when it comes to the genetics of your colonies. So that's the problem. That's the root yeah. cause of most issues is poor queens. They're either inbred or unadapted to your local cycles of weather or forage or if they've been poorly mated or poorly you know they were you know so there's several gradients of qualities of bees but basically what you want is swarm cells queens that were fed to the wazoo they were they were gorged on food that they're super fat and super strong they're more able to go mate with stronger and, and a, a lot more drones and bring in more of the diversity and they're going to be more likely to come back and they're going to be more likely to perform uh for the colony and and just kind of give them a plethora of uh sister cohorts and half sister cohorts that are going to bring in a lot of the adaptability to the uh various issues that can be happening in their environment 
uh, that's having all those tools in your bag that's really gets the colony stronger. And uh, there's something to be said, Les, what do you think about grafting? So my big thing about grafting is that you're basically picking um, larvae that have been hatched for a few hours, big enough for you to see them or big enough for you to uh, transfer them to cells. Uh, even in some of the cases where you're, you're, you're having those eggs in the cells and you're not doing that, the problem is that the conditions are not swarming conditions. They're not, the bees were not in that mode where they were feeding those larvae from the get-go royal jelly over worker jelly for every hour counts at the exponential growth of a larvae, right? So those few lost hours or the lack of uh, swarming conditions makes for inferior queens as far as I'm concerned. And that means that your best bet is to really, if you're going to rear queens, is to leverage the swarming instincts if you want the best possible queens. They've been known to be bigger, fatter, stronger, better quality than anything else that we do, right, Les? Right, right. What are your so, thoughts on that and that um, emergency versus swarming conditions and grafting and all that stuff? Well, my favorite way to raise bees is to let them come through the winter, maybe rearrange them a little bit in the spring, put the honey in front, give them room to expand to the back if, the, if that is needed. That's horizontal beekeeping, by the way, for those of you right. who are using Langstroth. Yeah. Right. Uh, and it's like reversing the boxes in Langstroth, although it's much more disruptive in mm -hmm. Langstroth because you often tear the brood nest apart. Yep. But um, I won't go into my. Yeah. About <laughs> Langstroth. <laughs> but I'll just try to avoid trashing Langstroth too badly. <laughs> but um, then. Let them get to the point where they just naturally start building queen cells and then make a divide. And if you have four or five combs with big queen cells on them, you use those queen cells in other places, make little divides and give them each a good queen cell. Mm -hmm. That's the best way to, that's letting them do it practically themselves. Mm -hmm. but, but just watching the timing and be, making sure you didn't get there too late. And that means I'm, I'm really dancing with the bee. She mm -hmm. starts to step and I move my foot out of her way. And then I step and she puts her foot right, right in my box. Mm -hmm. And so that's, a, that's my preferred way. And then it depends on the nature of the flowers and the weather. It's, it's, it's very, it's not in my control entirely, but I don't need it to be in my control. I want it to be in a natural thing. Mm -hmm. And then, there, I have had times where, boy, I really need to raise some queens, and I'll go ahead and try some grafts, but it is an inferior and a sort of an artificial thing. I recall years ago a study where they weighed the queens being produced by different queen producers, and they, they found a fair difference. Some queen producers produced bigger, heavier queens than others, but when they compared them, to queens that came from natural swarm cells, mm -hmm. nobody got close to the natural to swarm cell queen. Yeah. She was 25% heavier than the best queen breeders. That's a lot, 25% is a lot. Yeah, that's, that's a very significant. So that proved to me that just letting them raise natural swarm cells is far superior mm 
when you can. Right. So, so that that really uh, kind of is also what's interesting is that this is within the grasp of backyard beekeepers. Right. And anybody right. can do this. Anybody can kind of like push your colonies to be swarmy, uh, to want to get you know, to be congested. The way you do that is basically whether you're doing horizontal or vertical or whichever hive you're keeping is you want in periods of nectar flow, you want the, or just before the heavy nectar, just as it starts expanding and the bees are e exploding and expanding, you want to kind of uh, not give them too much space. It's the reverse of adding space. You want to just keep them on those tight conditions. Um, and then um, you want to watch every week at that point, because once you see um, no more space to lay, uh, food coming in, lots of capped brood, everything is filled with capped brood tight. There's drone, drone cells coming in and drones uh, are starting to emerge and you see that population has increased just after that huge boost of capped brood um, emerges, um, then you have a, a big congestion that's being created. And that's when they're gonna get swarmy. That's when they're gonna rear those queen cells. Um, there's gonna be less and less mm. space. They're gonna start backfilling the brood's nest with nectar and, and, and pollen and everything's gonna be tight and the queen's not gonna have any more space to lay. And, and, and those days are critical. That's at the time where you gotta watch what's happening in your colonies. And then as soon as you see those capped, uh, those queen cells being um, used, those queen cups being filled and lar larvae in them and jelly in them, you've got those swarming conditions. So less, there's two things. There's people that are using foundation and people that are using foundation less. Obviously it's easier to cut out those uh, queen cells uh, out of foundation less and they will pr probably make them in higher quantities and in areas that are more accessible to the beekeeper on foundation less. But what do you, I mean, between that and the foundation, how do you, um, what do you do when, as soon as you see those queen cells? What's your process? <coughs> So I check once a week, like you say, during swarm season in hives that are restricted. And I, by, it's a quick check. You just lift up and I prefer mostly to work with Tupper hives, but I can, I can just split two laying boxes and look at the underside. You mainly want to look at the bottoms of combs. Crack the box to the side, you, you pull it to the side. You right, don't even pull look, the frames. No, I just look underneath it if there are queen cells hanging down from above, well, okay, it's time. Or in the top of hive, I left two or three combs at a time sometimes. I just quickly look along the mm -hmm. bottom and the side margins, and I'll see those queen cell cups. And as soon as they're occupied, I go ahead and just make the divide right then. Four comb divide, where I pull the queen, two combs of cap brood, in between two combs of mostly honey and pollen, brush in some extra bees, put them back. Now, if I have three or four combs with queen cells, I may have a way to make another divide and put the queen cell in some other hives. And that, that's good. Or if I, um, and I rarely cut comb to cut the queen cell out, but you could, if you had three or four on one comb, Mm -hmm. You can cut them out. Delicately around it, right? Yeah, but I rarely do that. I mostly leave the comb intact and I go ahead and 
Because nature always is redundant. Mm -hmm. They always raise more queens than they need. So if there's two or three on a comb, I give all two or three to the next uh, existing hive or whatever. Yeah, and if you're requeening for the sake of getting better genetics and, and, and better queens, you got to take that other queen that you're removing out and then give them that frame or uh, bar with the uh, queen cells on it. Right, right. So then you have your poor queens marked, you just go get them and pinch them and put in a queen cell. Or you have a hive that you could divide up a little bit more and give them a queen cell and let them get started and see how they do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So between that and the using the naturally, the local naturally thriving genetics and between and adapt and letting your bees adapt to the local cycles of weather and forage and using foundationless so that they can make the cells sizes to their needs, which are usually um, smaller than what you would find on foundation. And therefore that makes for development cycles that are shorter and that means less time for the mites to reproduce right uh, right. so there's that and there's also um letting them kind of swarm or split and uh, have them um allow them to have those um brood breaks that they will naturally do this is how they control pests and pathogens and virus issues in the brood's nest. This is a sanitary process that the bees do on their own. And by preventing them from going through that sanitary process, we are forcing them to accumulate problems with mites, with viruses and, and bacteria and all kinds of problems. We're not letting them clean up shop. We're not mm. letting them clean up their nursery. So that's some, these are the three strategies that are critical if you're trying to go naturally uh, with your bees and, and have them thrive naturally. Right, right. Les, anything else that I missed on that? Yeah, that sounds good. It, it sounds good. So, um, so with that, I think that um, we've kind of discussed a little bit um, carrying capacity and uh, leveraging the bees' natural instincts to your advantage, whether you want to produce honey or not, whether you want to produce bees or not using lo um, local naturally thriving queens that are good quality, uh, foundationless, and, and just um, letting them, affording them to have a bird break on a regular, uh, at least once a year. Usually they do it twice a year. They do it when they swarm and then they do it during the winter dearth and even potentially in the summer dearth in Texas, right? right so right. they potentially have three bird breaks or quasi bird breaks in a year. And that's important right. for their health. So it gives the queen a rest. That too. Her, because she 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 can't stay at maximum capacity mm -mm. all the time, you know. We can't just run forever. We have to stop and sleep and yeah. That's that's the good point. That's an excellent point. It's something to remind our, our listeners is that we can't keep pushing that queen to her maximum and, and breaking point and expect the colony to do well so right. something to keep in mind as well very good Les. well uh with that i think that uh, we've kind of gone around the subject and i'm super thrilled to have you today on the natural beekeeping corner uh, i think we need to do that a little bit more often i uh, i appreciate your expertise and your wisdom when it comes to the bees and i learn from you all the time you're my 
you're my really good friends and my friend and mentor. And I learned so much from you that I think it's important that I bring you in more often and have others benefit from that. Well, it's my pleasure and I'm glad to be working with you. And I think this is, and I see the, I look at you as a younger generation because I'm definitely older. And it's, a little bit, it's, not much. Well, but it's, it's, it's going in a good direction. You get it, you get it. You're somebody who really gets the natural beekeeping approach. So wow. I appreciate working with you. Because I had a good teacher. <laughs> thank you. So with that, uh, thank you everyone. You guys, uh, we will be back in a month uh, for a new natural beekeeping corner. In the meantime, you guys be good. John is not here to say be good. I'll say be mindful and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Les. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to The Hive Jive. We appreciate you joining us on our beekeeping adventures. And you can find out more information about today's episode online at thehivejive.com. And as always, thanks for listening.